Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Battles continue to rage as Russia is said to be moving Ukraine's grain to countries friendly to Putin, so battles rage in Ukraine as well. NATO has increased its promised arms shipments, or at least promised to increase the shipments to the Ukraine military, which is punching above its weight, as we know. Steps uh, being taken to permit Ukraine's entry into the European Union. There's a lot to talk about, including life for the people in Ukraine at this time, after four months of invasion by Russia. We're joined by Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, Ambassador Yulia Kovalev is with us. Madam Ambassador, thank you very much for taking the time. How are you? Thank you. And first of all, let me congratulate all the Canadians with the Canadian week day and Canadian weekend. And I would like to thank on behalf of all the Ukrainians uh, to the Canadian people for the strong support and standing with Ukraine for many years and decades, but especially with these four months of the full-scale Russian war. Yeah, you have a tremendous amount of national support in this country, and it's manifested every day. I see it in emails, I hear it in phone calls, and we see Canadians really committed to Ukraine, not only Ukraine's survival, but Ukraine prospering. Thank you for that sentiment, Madam Ambassador. Let me ask you about this. The Ukraine military is performing tremendously well against what has been billed as one of the world's strongest military powers, Russia. You do need sophisticated equipment to fight the Russians. Are the promises made by NATO nations to continue supplying arms to Ukraine going to meet your military's daily requirements? Yes, indeed, the, all the Ukrainian nations. But first of all, uh, the brave men and women who are now with this particular moment on the front line these are the real heroes, not only for Ukraine, but for the democratic world. And actually, they showed for these last four months this courage of protecting our country, but also in a broader scope, the European security. With so-called second biggest army in the world, I'm specifically saying the so-called, but it turned out to be not so strong. Uh, but unfortunately, the, the situation on, on the East it's quite hard, and we are losing a lot of people every day. And this is because we do need more weapon supply. We do need heavy weapons, more art artillery. This, together with this courage spirit of, of Ukrainians, which were, by the way, well-trained for, for the last four years with the basic support of Canada and the program training program Unifier that was launched back almost six years ago. And that's why the, the delivery of the new weapons and the quick delivery of the new weapons is quite essential for us to keep the front line. And that was, uh, that was one of the big news on the NATO summit where the countries like Canada, like U.S., like Great Britain, like Denmark and the others uh, promised and pledged to the new military support of Ukraine. Now it's important that all of these promises will be, that they will be delivered quick so that Ukrainian soldiers can use it within the days and weeks on the battlefield. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because we remember when it began, there was a feeling that the Russians would be in Kiev within 72 hours. That was some of the feeling. Here we are four months later, and the Ukraine military has pushed them back. Even without the equipment that was necessary, you basically fought with one hand tied behind your back because you didn't have the, the air cover. But, Madam Ambassador, it must be agonizing for you and President Zelensky, who I understand you know very well, and, and your entire government to witness the war crimes being committed by Putin and his military against the civilian population of Ukraine. Would you provide us a perspective of what Putin is doing to the children and women of Ukraine? Most of your military age men are fighting, of course. So we all see these horrific pictures of uh, Bucha, Irpin. Uh, we haven't seen much pictures of Mariupol, where the situation is much worse, just because the Russian soldiers are keeping the city under control. And a lot of, like, over 300 children were killed during these four months. And these are the war crimes that we are working together with the partners to file the case and make Russia and Putin accountable for all of these war crimes. But coming back to the weapons, as we see the, the war is going on, we really understand that quick supply of the heavy weapons is the major tool to avoid this further atrocities. Because every day, especially this week, unfortunately, almost every day there were severe missile attacks. And the, the last one, which was uh, for the Odessa civilian buildings, took life for 21 people, including kids. So the weapon supply is actually a part of the humanitarian mission to uh, not to allow any further significant uh, civilian casualties in Ukraine. Yeah, you think about what they've done. It's, it is such a horror and such an outrage. Let me just ask you about the other aspect of what is an international crisis and what's the real situation as far as Ukraine's massive amounts of grains ready for export are concerned, export to a hungry world. We, we live in a world on the edge of mass starvation, millions of people who may have nothing to eat, and yet Ukraine grains are blocked from exiting your country via the Black Sea by the Russian Navy. Is there a way to resolve this situation? We need to be very clear here, uh, realizing that Putin is also using both grain and the energy as a weapon. And this weapon is already hitting the people and the nations in the countries who are uh, hundreds and thousands of kilometers far away from Ukraine. Because we are now, uh, with the blockade of the seaports, as Ukraine being one of the biggest agri-exporters in the world, the price for the food is now on the peak of the last 60 years. So this war is already hitting the, the grocery bills for everybody in the world. And that is that is the usage of uh, food as a weapon. And of course, the most severe consequences will be coming with the short shortage of food, especially in the countries of Africa and Middle East, where people just have a risk of feeling the famine and hunger. And uh, as of Ukraine, and I think from the very first day of, uh, of the Russian invasion, Ukraine, is ready to export and is now working with our European partners to rejoin the European rules of the agri-export. But if we look on the reality, uh, before the war, Ukraine was exported around 
five million pounds uh, of the agri food per month. Now, um, with all of the efforts we are doing and with the great support of Canadian government to help us for the grain storage, we, we are doing around two million, a little bit more than two million a month. But look, we have now on the stock around 20 million pounds of grain. So with such a speed, and if we will not be able to unblock the port, just only the current stock of the grain will be exported only within the next 10 months. So yeah. it is now a huge risk for, for everybody, and especially for the 40 million people, which UN already stated are at risk of the famine within the next few months. Yes. Yes. You're an expert um, on issues of... Uh, of uh, fuel and uh, energy. What level of concern does your government have that European and other nations still dependent on Russian oil and particularly Russian natural gas may attempt to reestablish some level of purchase uh, of both of them from Putin, particularly as winter begins to make its presence felt? Are you concerned? Actually, I think many of the European countries only now realized how for the last decade, they have been built this big uh, reliance on both Russian natural gas and uh, Russian oil. And this dependency uh, actually now is a huge risk for their energy security. Look on, on the actions of Russia and its monopoly Gazprom for the last three weeks. They are blaming the sanctions and they are blackmailing other countries. But actually what they are doing, they are just uh, cutting the European countries from the uh, from the gas supply and threatening the energy security for the next winter, which is their usual strategy. Unfortunately, we in Ukraine faced it many times. So we were three times cut off just in the middle of the winter, just in the New Year season from the natural gas supply to Ukraine. But we proved ourselves, uh, like it was back in 2004, 2008, uh, and 2014-15. So we witnessed on our side how Russia was using energy to push the government uh, on more policies, on more so-called friendly policies of Russia. And now Russia is trying to do the same with other European countries. Uh, but it is a very dangerous path if they would follow it, because uh, that will increase more dependency on Russia. And look, just for the 100 days of the war, uh, the, the countries paid over $90 billion for the Russian export of oil and gas. So actually, we all understand that this money is the money which are going then to finance uh, the war in Ukraine. And the biggest portion of it was uh, paid by the, actually by the European countries. And where here we are very grateful for the brave decision of the uh, and important decision of Canadian government to sanction any services that could be provided to Russian oil and gas sector. And these sanctions need to be remained. And the Europe needs to realize and work for the for uh, decrease the uh, reliance on the Russian and oil and gas. And it's uh, it's actually it's actually for the sake of. European energy security in a longer future. Madam Ambassador, uh, I won't uh, take more than a minute more of your time, but your president, Mr. Zelensky, is one of the world's most admired and respected leaders. 
How is he? His, his life has been under threat, we understand, daily. And yet he refused to leave Ukraine and still delivers a daily message to the people of the country. How is your president? I think a lot of uh, Canadian uh, students had a chance to uh, to talk and to see President Zelensky just uh, a week ago when he was making the address to the uh, 11 biggest uh, Canadian universities. And we are, we are very proud of having now such a leadership of the President Zelensky in this hardest time, in the wartime. And uh, he, he is working at enormous pressure and, uh, of course, the, the responsibility for all of the Ukrainians, for all of the Ukrainian nation, for each and every Ukrainian who was wounded during this war. And all of his efforts, uh, what he's doing is, is working with our partners, is working with our people both to join and to increase the support of Ukraine with our international partners and also uh, with the government working to, uh, to further stabilize and provide the Ukrainians, including those over 6 million of who are temporary displaced people inside the country, to provide them with all of the funding needed just for the minimum survival. Okay. And here I would like actually to say to thank Canadian government for providing a robust financial support that helps us to to keep these people with the minimum needs. There was not the kind of massive uh, accumulation of humanity in Ottawa yesterday to disturb the events of the day. There were some little moments, but that's going to happen anyway. But there's no denying that this country is divided. None. So we're going to talk about the successes, the failures, the challenges facing Canada and Canadians on this 2022 Canada Day weekend. We're living in a time of national division and political unrest. We know that. You have to be blind or not paying attention, uh, metaphorically, just out of it. But how deep is the division and how restless is the unrest? Is Justin Trudeau correct when he told the New York Times in 2016, you remember this, right? Days after being sworn in as Canada's Prime Minister, he said, quote, there is no core identity, no mainstream Canada, end quote. And then he added that he sees Canada as, quote, the first post-national state, end quote. That's open to so many interpretations. But here we are, not so long after that, and we find our country divided politically, geographically, philosophically. And so what has Canada... Remember, it wasn't so long ago that Canada by the United Nations was rated as the world's number one nation in which to live. Jean Chrétien used to boast about that every year when he was prime minister. So what has Canada succeeded at? What are we failing at? Have we been successful enough to make national successes the foundation for a return to trust in our future? If that trust has seriously been eroded, you may not think so. So let's get at this. What did we succeed at? What are we failing at? What are the challenges that are facing this nation? I always appreciate our next guest, who uh, is very straightforward with answers and has the responsibility of leading in this country. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe joins us. Premier, happy Canada Day plus one. Well, happy Canada Day weekend to you and all of your listeners as well, Roy. Are we a significantly divided country, 
premier? And if so, is it east-west? Uh, is it is it some other division or a series of divisions? And how seriously do these divisions need to be taken? There, there is, uh, you know, there are divisions or disagreements or, or differences of opinion uh, across the nation. I don't know if it's east-west, if it's rural, urban, urban. Um, you know, what might uh, attribute to the, the difference of opinions that we have. I think they've been highlighted over the course of the of the past couple of years. But I, I think, you know, this Canada Day weekend, this is an opportunity for all of us as Canadians to, uh, you know, really think a, a little bit deeper as to what truly d- it does make us Canadian. And I, I, I believe that there is a, a uniqueness to being in this nation. We have, yes, people here from... Uh, that, that have lived here, that are living here from, that have moved from all over the world. Um, but one, and paramount, I think, among uh, a trait of being Canadian is, is quite frankly, our generosity. And two is our, our willing to accept uh, one another for, for who we are, regardless of what our opinions are. We're, uh, you, know, you know, we're people that get along with, with other folks all around the world. We always have. That's been our our trademark really as as being Canadian is to bring people together as opposed to divide them. So although we can disagree without being disagreeable, I, I think this Canada Day weekend is a, a good time for, for each of us to remember uh, what it truly means to be Canadian. And uh, part of that is accepting one another um, despite uh, our differences of opinions. Yeah. So let me just get at this issue of what we have and what we're not doing with what we have. You and I have talked about this, Premier. I know you're working on it in Saskatchewan, uh, and that is we have massive natural resources the world needs. It's clear as as day that oil and natural gas are not going to disappear in the next years. They're going to be necessary. We have an abundant supply of both. We're not even good at exchanging it or directing it to one another. And we certainly can't do it internationally because we don't have the infrastructure to do it. How are we, Premier, how, how do you propose that we properly address this, given the world's requirement, the abundance of supply that Canada has, and this is the word that's used constantly, ethically, that Canada ethically pr- produces? Yeah, we're we're missing our our opportunity. The rest of the world, however, is not. Um, you know, I, I've I've been around the world in even just the last few months, and around the world they're developing their resources, and where they are not, um, they're regretting it. Uh, most notably across the, the European Union, um, where they have purchasing a, a large portion of their their gas, their oil, their coal from Russia, and they're regretting not not uh, setting up different trade. Um, trade relationships with places like North America or developing their own, uh, quite frankly. So, you know, as we look ahead, and here, here's here's maybe one of the challenges that we have uh, in this nation, is we we, uh, we do have a, a federal government that is making decisions. Um, often in those decisions, they're not looking at what is the economic impact of this decision or what is actually the impact on, um, you know, working Canadians uh, and their jobs uh, in in that particular industry, whether it be the energy industry, whether it be the the LNG industry, whether it be folks that are uh, driving trucks up and down the road or building pipelines uh, across this co- this country, or whether it be quite frankly in the mining industry, in the Ring of Fire, uh, even into Quebec and Atlantic Canada, or here in Saskatchewan or or Alberta, and and so you you need to take a holistic approach to decisions. You you can't just solely focus on um, 
just, for example, only the environment with the decision and not take into account uh, your own food security or energy security. You need to have a balance with the decisions that you're making. That's what we're doing here in Saskatchewan. That's what we're going to continue to do as we develop uh, the the wealth of natural resources that we have here the, and, and really develop uh, the food, fuel, and fertilizer to provide uh, not only North Americans, but uh, do our bit in providing that food security and energy security to the world. Yeah, Premier, we all need to feel like we have a participatory role to play in our society. We don't want to just be sitting on the sidewalk watching the parade go by or be instructed on what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it and I'm pointing particularly at the federal government of this country. You've expressed concerns about the Prime Minister and his divisive uh, nature. Only 8% of Canadians, according to recent polling by Angus Reid, 8% strongly approve of Mr. Trudeau's performance as Prime Minister. So what's your thoughts on the work uh, the Prime Minister and this government is doing at this time in the areas of energy supply shortages, inflation, interest rate hikes, and the need for a real focus on Ottawa, uh, by Ottawa, on the agricultural sector, such as the, the one of Saskatchewan? Well, if you look over the course of the past few years, you can see the direction the federal government is going. And, and quite frankly, I don't think you'll find 8% in Saskatchewan that are supportive of our prime minister. I don't know if you'll find one uh, individual. You may, if you look hard enough, um, but I haven't yet. The uh, You know, as, as we look ahead, we, we've seen the federal government lead on a number of files, and, and, and you've seen provinces disagree with this, many provinces and and react to that in in various different ways we see premier kenny uh, and the ucp uh, government in alberta has successfully taken their their bill c69 to the uh, the highest court in the province uh, there and and that bill has been that uh, bill has been ruled as being unconstitutional as it is uh, violating the 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 province's constitutional rights. I think what you're going to see, and I know what you're going to see from Saskatchewan in the months ahead, is uh, rather than us being reactive, in particular on on the files where we do have jurisdiction, like our natural resources, uh, you're going to see the provinces step into uh, the leadership role and and really look to the federal government if they choose to react to the decisions that the provinces are making in developing our sustainable resources, our potash uh, to provide food security to the world, our our agricultural products. We're not going to use less fertilizer in Saskatchewan. Uh, we're going to continue to produce the most sustainable food in the world. We're going to develop our uranium, our helium, our lithium, our rare earth elements uh, in the years ahead. Uh, and we're most certainly going to lead on on how we do this. And if the federal government chooses to react to provinces making decisions in our, our realm of responsibility, so be it. Let me introduce you to... Um to our next guest. I always appreciate when we have a chance to speak with Selena Cesar Chavan. She was the first black elected member of parliament for Whitby, Ontario in 2015. Over time, she came to understand that she was being tokenized by her government. This is what she's told us before, which would largely assign her appearances at events organized by black communities in Canada. So the new MP objected and came to question her party's commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And uh, Member of Parliament Cesar Chavan informed Mr. Trudeau that she wouldn't be running again in 2019 and was subject to angry tirades by the Prime Minister. So she left, sat as an independent, and didn't run again in 2019. Now, just three weeks ago, 
We'll have her explain to us what happened when Selena Caesar Chavan was on Parliament Hill and was subjected to checkpoints. We'll get into that in a second. But let me tell you a little bit about her. Her best-selling autobiography, Can You Hear Me Now?, is out in paperback. It's a tremendous read. She's launched an equity-based app, Maximizing You, the letter U. She's a champion of Mental Health Parliamentarian Award. She received that in 2017 from the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health. She also was the global 100 under 40 most influential people of African descent from politics and governance. She was Black Parliamentarian of the Year in 2017 and Chatelaine Magazine's Woman of the Year in 2019. Selena, it's good to talk to you again. How are you? It is always a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me again. Yeah, it's always fun when, when you and I talk. <laughs> I just had this thought while I was talking about you. When you see what's going on in this whole election cycle, this because we're in one, and we're never out of them. When you see what's going on in the federal government now, you have the liberal NDP alliance, you have the conservatives, uh, tearing at each other's throats over who's going to be the leader of the party. What are you What are you seeing? What's What's your reaction to what you see? So, Roy and your listeners, like it, what I'm seeing is what actually transpired in Ontario, right? So, you know, most people would have thought that Doug Ford may probably would not have gotten another four years, and if he did, he would have at least gotten it under a minority. There would have been some challenge to him how we handle the pandemic, how we handle a number of different initiatives. But when you don't have another leader who is able to inspire confidence in the electorate, so the liberals uh, put up someone that didn't inspire, um, in my opinion, Andrew Horrath overstayed her welcome, just like Kathleen, Kathleen Wynne did, um, you get what you got in Ontario. And when you see what's happening on the federal side, I keep questioning, like, how does Trudeau keep getting elected? Well, when you don't have a conservative leadership that's going to inspire the majority of Canadians, and we saw Pierre, you know, marching with the convoy and, you know, really just having this sort of further division, further divide, uh, you see uh, the NDP doing this alliance, uh, and I'm going to use air quotes if your listeners could, could see that alliance in air quotes. Um, with the with the federal government, you really, you know, you're going to get a few more years of Justin Trudeau and his, you know, his tagline of, you know, we could always do better, there's always more to do. And you'll continue to have provinces like, like, you know, Saskatchewan stating their claim, like, you know, stepping up for their for their regions. So, what I'm seeing is a lack of leadership and Canadians being forced to pick from the bottom of the barrel every single election, and it's not fair to any of them. We were talking last hour about the leadership issue in this country. Scott Moe, Assange mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. was on with us. I'm, I'm glad to talk to you about it. But let me go to something that happened to you three weeks ago on yeah. Parliament Hill. Tell us about that. So 
I hope we get to dissect it a little bit more, but for context for your listeners, I'll tell them that I was on Parliament Hill with a group from uh, Toronto Metropolitan University or Ryerson. It was called the um, Institute of Future Legislators. So it's a bunch of young people who are interested on being on the Hill in some way, either as an MP or a bureaucrat, some way informing our democratic decisions. And the last trip that we took, it was was three weekends. And the last trip was a trip to Ottawa in which they could actually sit in the chambers, um, in the Senate chambers, have debate and sort of really mock up what they would do if they ever decided to go into government. And of course, being there and being a former politician, I decided to wear my pin. So the parliamentary pin, uh, for those of you who don't know, when you're elected, and as long as you've ever been elected, uh, you get to wear this pin. And this pin gives you access unfettered access to every building within the parliamentary precinct. Meaning, once you're wearing the pin, security knows right away that you are either a current MP or you are a past MP. And so you will not go through, you know, you're having your bag search, having your body search uh, to get into the parliamentary precinct. And on three weeks ago, that is exactly what happened to me. I had my pin on, it was highly visible. I made sure that it was where people could absolutely see it. And I was subjected to my bags being searched, my body being searched. And then immediately after I walked in, I was escorted through security. Another former MP who had been elected and left politics way before I did, at least a good 10 years before I did, again, had the pin and walk straight through the front door. And that MP was not from a visible no, minority. She, she wasn't government, no, it was Peggy Nash and she's been public with it, so I don't mind saying her name, um, but she just was told, oh no, you don't have to, in fact, she was told you don't have to go through security, Miss Nash, you could just go right through the front door. So you're black, again, you, get, you again, get that treatment. I'm not, I'm, not ask, I'm not saying that people would recognize me. No but they recognize the pin on both. Yeah. And so, I was racially profiled versus... Well, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and you know what, Roy, when you think about that, when you think about how long I've been talking about this, so I brought this up in 2016, that this was happening to me, that I was not given access to parliamentary buildings, my office, um, getting getting on the bus and people said, oh, you know, Selena, you're a diva. You're expecting too much. What do you want people to hold the door for you? That wasn't the, the case. And when you talk about leadership, if in 2016, the prime minister had said, hello, this is my parliamentary secretary. I want the parliamentary protective services to know who she is, to make sure that when I walk through a building and I'm safe and I'm protected by parliamentary protective services, that she also gets that same treatment. If he actually stepped up as a feminist and as a leader and understood what what intersectional diversity looks like, he would have done that six years ago. And that's why we have this continued repeated behavior because of a lack of leadership from the top. Yeah, I'm thinking about the impact that it has on the young people who were there with you watching this going on. Oh, absolutely. And when you when you think about so I also want your listeners, Roy, to to think about the fact that this is not my house. It's not Justin Trudeau's hill. It the the, the parliament is the people's house. That's where the the the, the 
the democracy, demos and kratos, the, 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 the Latin terms, means the power of the people. And so when you have young people, when you have regular citizens being profiled, being in, uh, unable to access the building based on what they wear, when you think about C-22 in, in Quebec, based on what they wear in certain legislators, based on their abilities in certain legislators, based on their, their skin color or their gender or whether there's gendered washrooms. These are all points that limit access and a sense of belonging inside these institutions that are supposed to belong to the people. I know. Before we go talk a bit more about the world of politics and the world you left, and I hope you return one day, what is Maximizing You all about? So I developed Maximizing You because, like you said before the break, Roy, people were talking about DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I don't think people were quite understanding how to implement it in their organizations or in their daily lives. So what I did, um, because I do have an MBA in healthcare management, I also have an executive MBA, I created an app that aligns various leadership competencies, like, for example, communicating, building resilience, um, the research of all in around decision-making or stakeholder engagement or networking. And I tag them with various equity components. So understanding how to network differently, how to um, how our intersecting identities build resilience. So how our biases impact the way that we are able to communicate or to develop product or services. So really taking a it's a 15 module um, app that can be downloaded through the App Store or through Google Play called Maximizing You. And when you go through it, you'll learn these um, leadership competencies, which I base on a lot of research. So they're research-based, but as you're developing those leadership competencies, you're also looking at ways to do that with a very equitable approach, um, which I think is different than just saying that DEI or understanding diversity, equity, and inclusion is a standalone. It's not a standalone. It should be incorporated as part of an organizational structure around leadership development. Yeah, the more people understand, the more people know, the more it's applicable, the better we do at everything. Exactly. If you can't apply it to your own self, how do you expect to apply it to a whole organization? Well, exactly. Let me, we have about five minutes. Um, go back to the government for a second here. Mr. Trudeau talks about being a feminist. But there was the treatment of you, by Trudeau, yelling at you twice when you told him you weren't going to run again in 2019. He'd made you, well, he made you feel like, uh, didn't he say something to you like, look at all I've done for you? Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. Like I was, I, that, that I should be totally appreciative of everything that he is and his brand and everything that he purports to be. And then there was the treatment of Jody Wilson-Raybould, who you know well, mm -hmm. um, Dr. Jane Philpott. When a prime minister behaves in a manner like that, it filters down the ranks, and I think it encourages others to take a dismissive position toward women, and then also uh, toward women from visible minorities. I don't like that term, yeah, but it's you know what I mean. Uh, but it's um, you know like like Jody Wilson-Raybould, First Nations. Mm -hmm. You are black. You contributed in that government. You contributed to him, but you were beholden to him. If there's anything that's sexist, that's the behavior. That's the sexist behavior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did anything change when you 
sat as an independent member of parliament? Did people act differently? You know, I don't, I'm not sure if there was enough time for there for me to understand a difference. But when you when I look at over the news over the last couple of weeks and, you know, what Michelle Rempel, for example, has put out in terms of a toxic environment within a conservative yeah. party. Again, the tone is set from the top. And if we really think about the 42nd Parliament, you had someone who purported to be a feminist, someone who valued diversity and had problems with Jody Wilson-Raybould, Jane Philpott, myself, Leona Alislev, Eva Nassaf. That's right. And it really sets the tone. And it's not just about women. It's about understanding that when you have a practice or an organizational culture that is so toxic that you don't give a sense of belonging, you cannot, therefore, really tap into the value that those individuals bring irrespective of their intersecting identities. So you don't tap into that because people are so afraid to speak. They're so afraid to challenge. They're so afraid to give their opinion that might be dissenting. And it, it ends up costing Canadians. So Roy, really quickly, we know that when you add diversity, it, it causes organizations to have a 19% higher return on investment, better better decision-making, et cetera. And these are all done by McKinsey or Boston Consulting Group. We can look at the research. So when we don't do that, especially in our policy, when we're exclusive and toxic, it costs Canadians from having people who could really have great decisions at those decision-making tables that could impact them in a great way. I'll bet you there were people who when you said to Trudeau, I'm out of here, I'm not running running again. Yeah. And then when he behaved the way he did, and you sat as an independent, there must have been people who said, why did she do that? She was on the fast track. Oh yeah. my God, you know, this was, she had, that road was paved with gold. Why would Selena do that? And unfortunately, I think that may be the preponderance of the attendees in the Canada's parliament. Instead of doing what they're supposed to do, and that is to stand up for themselves and then by extension, stand up for their constituents, because if you don't stand up for yourself, you're not going to stand up for anybody else. If, if, yeah, if, they, if they'd done what you did, we'd all be better off. 100%. And you know what? Um, to your listeners, there's this great essay by Clayton Christensen, who's this great Harvard um, professor who wrote an essay called How Will You Measure Your Life? And in the essay, he says, it's easier to stand by your values and principles 100% of the time than it is to stand by them 98% of the time. You have to draw a line in the sand. And I knew that I couldn't look at myself in the, in the mirror if I accepted the behavior, if I got myself quiet and decided to be the model minority, which they, they call it, or to, to you know sort of be the, the nice version, the quiet version of Selena. I just couldn't do that. And so we have to stand in our values and principles and challenge. Otherwise, we're not going to, otherwise better will not be possible. In France, I'm sure many of you have seen this over the last couple of days, the biggest trial in modern French history concluded this week after nine months in a specially constructed and very secure court. Salah Abdeslam received what is in France a very rare full life prison sentence for the role that he played in the November 13, 2015 terror attack on Paris that killed 130 people and saw hundreds more injured. You'll remember this particular attack, I'm sure. Restaurants, bars, the National Soccer Stadium were all attacked, and there was that just horrible massacre at the Bataclan music venue. Well, our guest was in France at the time 
of that 2015 attack. Dr. Christian Luprecht is back with us, professor at Queen's University and the Royal Military College, Eisenhower Fellow at the NATO Defense College in Rome, Monk Senior Fellow in Security and Defense at the MacDonald Laurier Institute. He's also the author of many books, including his most recent, Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, which is published by Oxford University Press. Christian, thank you very much for joining us. What are your memories of being in France in 2015 when that horrific terror attack took place? I think disbelief that something like this can happen in your own backyard, in your own neighborhood, in your own country. These are sort of the, this, the violence that we had associated with other places in the world. And it was sort of a real um, reminder that we live in a globalized world and that violent extremist ideology and that the threat at the time, listeners might remember from the Islamic State uh, in Iraq and expansion into Syria, uh, was now attaining a, a global reach because, of course, the attackers, as we subsequently learned, most of them had fought uh, in Syria or in Iraq um, and clearly were desensitized to violence and, 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 and were deeply socialized um, into, uh, uh, into, into a very dehumanizing ideology. And I think, you know, we, we, when that happened that evening on November 13th, um, it, 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 was, uh, it was stunning that something of this scale, uh, this organized, could happen uh, in, in France, despite the fact that France had long, since the 1990s, um, and, and, and the Algerian um, extremist attacks had long had a very robust anti-terrorism posture. Yeah, is that the reason that France was the target, or is a because France has been the target of other extreme terrorist attacks? Why? Yeah, France, of course, has always had a difficult historical relationship with uh, the Middle East and with North Africa, uh, in particular. Um, and I think that relationship is certainly part of perhaps what what motivated the. Uh, uh, the grievances that uh, uh, that played themselves out uh, in this particular case, um, but France also has a challenging relationship at home uh, with some minority groups. But of course, most people never resort to violence over their grievances, and I think in this particular case, it is the the connection that the attackers, um, who were mostly in origin from France and from Belgium, um, um, ultimately developed with the Islamic State, and I think it's it's a reminder that. Um, we ultimately collectively um, need to understand that we live in a globalized world, that what happens in other places in the world um, does affect us directly back here um, at home. And I think at the time there was sort of a sense that, you know, the Islamic State, that sort of it, it's cruel and it's, it's, it's violent, but it's sort of other people's problems. It's not our problem. And I think this for me very much was a reminder that not only is it our problem, it's also our responsibility to draw a line at the type of behavior that simply uh, no, no state can ever anywhere condone and that we have a collective responsibility um, and that if we don't realize that collective responsibility, uh, there are consequences. And I think the, the, um, um, it's, it's certainly, I think, galvanized um, a much more robust uh, response by both France and the West um, uh, from uh, the attacks that uh, that transpired in Paris. I mean, 130 people that were yeah. killed, yeah. Um, uh, over 400 people that were wounded, 100 of them critically. I mean, this is a um, this was the greatest uh, mass killing in Europe since the Madrid train bombings in uh, 2004. 
Yeah. You know, um, we've almost become complacent, somewhat complacent now, or it appears that way, that there hasn't been a massive terror attack. And just think back to the mood in Canada when two of our members of our military were murdered uh, in two days. And, and then think of 130 people being murdered, 400 more, as you say, being wounded, some 100 of them critically. The response in the country must have been just on the ragged edge of emotional survival. But we've become a little complacent. Now, there was that attack in Norway a few days ago. But how concerned should we all still be about the existing, I don't want to scare people, but threat of terror? Yeah, I think the this uh, it was it was a galvanizing moment for jihadi, Salafist-inspired uh, violence. I think, and sort of the realization just how global this phenomenon is. Um, in the same way that the Christchurch attacks, I think, were a realization of the extent that uh, right-wing violent extremism posed on a on a global scale. Um, and the, uh, I mean, the response by France was a response that ultimately led to uh, the suspension of the rule of law of certain constitutional provisions. Uh, people could be arrested, uh, detained, arrested um, without warrant under a state of emergency that ultimately lasted three months. Um, and uh, a deployment, a military deployment uh, that lasted for years afterwards uh, in terms of the internal security posture. And that also affected us all because it meant that one of the more capable NATO members, a significant portion of their armed forces um, were not available. Uh, for instance, when it came to um, uh, issues such as Russian deterrence, it's one of the reasons why Canada ended up taking um, the, uh, the framework nation mission uh, in Latvia because there were only a couple of countries around with headquarters experience um, that were not otherwise engaged. And, and France would have likely taken that mission um, if it hadn't been engaged in in Africa and with its domestic uh, with its domestic mission, and so I think it reminds us that um, having effective and 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 robust intelligence services, uh, rather than being a threat to our freedoms, that if we if we're not uh, effectively postured and we can't uh, detect, deter, intercept uh, these types of plots early on. Uh, it can lead to a fairly significant suspension of uh, of the rule of law and of our, of our constitutional rights. And I think in, in France, it certainly ignited a very significant debate because uh, um, people realized that, uh, that perhaps the balance that France had struck um, was still not entirely adequate relative to the, uh, to the security posture. Um, and ultimately, um, we can't uh, let people, this was not just a statement of violence, it was a political statement, uh, about the ability of uh, groups to have a global reach right back to our capitals with the intent of making a political point. Um, and I think we need to show ourselves resilient um, against this type of, uh, of, of coercion um, yes. by uh, extremists. Do you think there is, um, I mean, there's a lot of talk. We're going to do this, we're going to do that. We have these conferences, people get a little caviar, a little wine into them, and then they make pronouncements. I'm being cynical. And, uh, and then... Over time, the commitment fades. What do you think? Yeah, I think uh, to make the segue from our previous conversation, just like I think there wasn't an, a full commitment against the Islamic State initially, and these were other people's problems, I think there's a, 
Uh, there's a sense still among a significant part, I think, of the Canadian population that Ukraine is really not Canada's problem. These are problems that are far away, and we don't realize the global implications uh, of what's transpiring here. And at this point, Ukraine is entirely reliant uh, on the NATO alliance and on partners. Uh, Ukraine is running out of munitions for their Soviet area weapons. Uh, they don't have their own fuel anymore because Russia has shot up uh, their refineries. Uh, and so this isn't just about uh, making sure that uh, Ukraine can defend itself. This is very much about a question about keeping Ukraine in the fight and the obligation of, that NATO has and that the role that NATO has been playing in coordinating uh, military equipment. Uh, NATO has a coordinating cell where um, Ukraine places requests for equipment and then that coordinating cell looks at who might be able to provide what and on what sort of timeline uh, and the supply chains that uh, because it's not just about people making announcements about getting equipment there is also making sure um, that Russians are, of course, actively targeting those supply chains. So making sure we can actually get that equipment into Ukraine safely so it can be deployed effectively against Russia. And I'm concerned that many of the announcements that we've made have been largely performative for Western politicians so that uh, they can look to their own populations like they're doing what they're doing enough. But look, I mean, the, the commitments made, I think we have sort of three uh, three broad blocks within NATO. There's the Eastern European new NATO member countries that are all in, um, but of course have very limited resources themselves. There's the US-UK alliance that sees this as an opportunity to weaken Russia and the threat that Russia poses, not just to Ukraine, but to its entire periphery. But then much of Western Europe, uh, as well as Canada, seems to me reluctant. They would much prefer a ceasefire, perhaps at any cost, um, and to stop the uh, to stop the fighting here, and I think this is very much about making sure we enable Ukrainian sovereignty. That it should never be up to us to decide when the Ukrainians may cut a deal or when the Ukrainians uh, may decide they agree on a ceasefire with Russia. It is up to us to enable the Ukrainians to defend themselves until the Ukrainians themselves decide that they are in a position where they are prepared uh, to negotiate a peace deal or to negotiate a ceasefire. And so I'm, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about that, uh, uh, that uh, there is much more that can um, and, and needs to be done and the real reluctance by Western politicians that are seeing war fatigue among their populations that uh, realize their populations are unhappy about the increase in their gas prices. You pay uh, yeah. about a third more today than you did the yeah, day exactly. before the invasion uh, for your gas. And so I think I don't see enough from, from Western politicians and from our own prime minister in explaining to Canadians uh, the importance of staying the course and of incurring, uh, if necessary, significant cost um, uh, to uh, defend what is not just Ukrainian interests, but Canadian interests. Yeah, I mean, keeping Ukraine in the fight may keep us out of the fight and uh, they, they should fundamentally understand that. Now, Canada's capability to contribute more, when uh, we can't really meet our own defense requirements, we, we're, you know, we're still muttering about Navy supply ships. Well, the only one we have is the MV Asterix, which was uh, brought in on time and on budget by Admiral Mark Norman, who then faced the wrath of uh, Justin Trudeau. And uh, so, I mean, we, we know that story well. The CF-18 Antiques, which would, you know, be target practice for fifth-generation fighters, like the equivalents of the F-35 from Russia and China. So this is all serious business, and, and 
And, and so what's your, I mean, what's, you, you understand NATO, you know these people, you understand the politicians better than the rest of us and what their likelihood is of action is. Are they going to provide just enough to create the headline that says we're doing enough and maybe be slowly, gradually just decreasing, eroding Ukraine's capability to keep on fighting the Russians? Yeah, so I think let's look at sort of the commitment, right? So the United States made a commitment of two F-35 squadrons that are being deployed to the UK. Why F-35s? Because they're the only fighter jet um, in the besides the F-22, which is not for sale, um, that is able to defeat uh, Russian air defenses. So if we had the F-35, Canada could have, for instance, provided one of those squadrons, and the United States could have kept that other squadron for other problems in the world or deter China. Uh, and so it means that, yes, it's great that, th- that the United States is stepping up with army, military and, um, and more maritime capabilities in Europe. But let's remember that those are all capabilities that are not uh, available to uh, contain China. And it's very clear from the new NATO strategic concept uh, that the collusion between Moscow and Beijing in terms of uh, undermining the international rules-based order, the weaponization of international law, uh, is a common concern uh, for us all. And I think the division of labor is still very much that Europe ultimately has, America, has an America problem uh, insofar as that it is too heavily dependent on America for its defense and, so, uh, and security. So, Christian, and I have... Europe, and I, Europe I, I has a, a Canada bit. problem because Canada needs to provide energy security, and that's a conversation the prime minister is not prepared to have. Exactly. Well, so, so here we are. We have exactly one minute left. In your, you explain to Canadians why why we why we need to care about this. I know you just did, but in sixty seconds, sixty seconds, give us the cut down version. Canada ultimately needs to make sure it uh, it learns its lessons from the first half of the twentieth century, um, where we committed robustly to international institutions and the international rules that ultimately made us the secure, prosperous, stable continent that we are and that is so highly desired by everybody else in the world who would like to immigrate here. And so we need to remind ourselves how we ultimately got here. And so this naive isolationism of pretending that sort of we can just withdraw uh, is not just bad in terms of our own interests in international security. It also diminishes our role internationally because it means we might have a seat at the table, but we're not going to be heard and we can't influence um, the key international decisions at NATO, at the G7 and elsewhere if we're not making real contributions with real capabilities, which diminishes our voice and diminishes our ability in terms of foreign affairs to assert uh, to assert our interests. And so I'm deeply concerned about the obsolescence that Canada is increasingly facing uh, in international affairs, which is bad for the world and it's really bad for Canada. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.